0: Welcome back to our final part, part three of CIOs and Bowties. Uh, as I said, uh, initially, uh, a bit of a different version. We're we focusing here on tax alpha. My guest is Fraser Rice, uh, author of the book Wealth Actually, and he is also with um, uh, I think it's a Pendleton, Pendleton Square uh, Trust Company. Uh, and he's also had many, many years working with Wilmington Trust, uh, an LLB by qualification and, um, and have a golfer. <laughs> Hope you've been able to get out on the links, uh, phrase with, uh, with COVID and, and whatnot going on.
1: It's the one thing that they seem to allow without, uh, much restrictions. So I I've gotten out there a little bit, Terrific. so it's good. That's great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's switch to some programs, if you will, uh, around, uh, tax planning. So why don't you take it through, uh, I know you've mentioned a few, so let me not even, preface it, why don't you just take us through some that are popular and, and, um, some that you guys are offered to clients.
1: Sure. So, um, I'm going to start with the first one, which I think is one that is, uh, tried and true and that everyone who is looking at a big tax, bill uh probably should have in front of them in one way shape or form and that's public excuse me private placement life insurance Uh, as many people may or may not know but life insurance essentially allows for tax-free growth uh, of the assets that support the life insurance policy and then there's a lot of different um I guess I would say optionality in terms of using the cash value of those policies uh, for and you borrow against them with the idea that when you die, you'll pay that loan back. Uh, those proceeds are essentially uh, tax free. Um, I say that with a bit of an asterisk, um, but that mm-hmm. whole that overarching concept of using a life insurance chassis uh, to get uh, income and capital gains tax uh, relief Uh, for certain assets is something that is uh, it's becoming extremely popular um, in, within the uh, high net worth and ultra high net worth set. It's always been popular as a way to uh, deal with the planning concepts. Uh, just, We'll take a step back. Life insurance generally has a couple of different functions. Uh, for the first one, uh, most people use it uh, with the idea that it's a, an income replacement for family in case something goes wrong. Uh, the second way people use it is as a way to fund estate taxes. So if you have $50 million and you have a $25 million estate tax hit, uh, there is the idea that if you have a certain amount of life insurance to cover that, that helps to preserve your estate. And if you run the numbers and buy your life insurance correctly, uh, you're killing two birds with one stone with the income replacement Mm -hmm. and the estate tax component. The third part, um, and this is controversial to some, is the idea of life insurance as an investment or as an asset class. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the way uh, it's evolving, private placement life insurance is getting a lot more attention as an after-tax asset class, especially as income taxes are rising. Uh, If you're able to invest uh, proceeds into life insurance, uh, get that tax-free build-up and accumulation, and then tax advantaged uh, withdrawal rights, uh, loan capabilities, et cetera, uh, that that's, that's a product slash feature that if structured correctly and uh, sort of uh, filled with the correct assets uh, can be interesting to think about for some people.
0: What well, What is the private placement component of it? I mean, I'm used to private placements as in, you know, private transaction. But what, what does that
1: fit? Yeah. So essentially, so private placement there within the state regulation of uh, different insurance. Um, and so life insurance is regulated at the state level. Uh, certain mm-hmm. investments are permissible. And uh, as the market has gotten more and more sophisticated, uh, things like hedge funds, things like uh, private placements, things like like contributing certain uh, assets into private placement life insurance policies, uh, that's becoming more and more in vogue. Uh, so okay. it's not; it, it doesn't necessarily have to be just stocks and bonds uh, anymore. There are different uh, there are different components that can be put into private placement life insurance policies, and that's that's what's getting a lot of interest from people. So as they're trying to reach yeah. for return in a after tax environment, having that chassis in place uh, is is an interesting component. Uh, I don't like to call it a Roth IRA type substitute, but it's in similar in nature. It provides different functions. It has, right. it has life insurance functions and it has, uh, uh, sort of investment functions as well.
0: Is there a, uh, kind of cash surrender value as well? So you can kind of redeem through a cash surrender?
1: Yes. So, and again, this gets to the notion of, you know, there's sort of, to get back for your listeners, there's term insurance, which is what a lot of people use purely to mm-hmm. replace income. So you pay a low level ah. of amount and uh, essentially that that term ends, you don't have anything to show for it. You were just paying a smaller amount of mm-hmm. premium in order to replace the income that goes away. Permanent insurance, uh, under which uh, I would say universal and whole life, uh, they f- they fit into that background. Uh, that's those are the areas where you're paying more in premium, but the insurance policy is generating cash surrender value. So the concept mm-hmm. of private placement is sort of taking these universal policies and. Uh, instead of having them invested in fixed income and growing at a smaller amount, you're really trying to ramp up the investments underneath the insurance yep. policy and increase yep. them
0: accordingly. Got it. Got it. Okay. The next one I know is a little bit of a, a controversial one. So let's so sure.
1: cut through it. Ah, okay. So conservation easements. Uh, and so this is something Especially
0: that Especially down here, by the way,
1: oh, right they down. are, they are, they are a big deal in the South um, and they're starting to get more attention in the North. Uh, so the concept of a conservation easement is, in a sense, a pretty easy one. The, uh, if you have, let's say, 100 acres of property and uh, you take uh, 100 acres and you conserve it, you put an easement on it uh, for the purpose of land conservation, which is a very, I think, a very admirable goal and something that, uh, you know, as this country continues to get more and more developed, but it's really uh, you know, something that's it's, it's a useful program. Uh, you mm-hmm. can uh, get the value of that conservation easement and use that against your tax return uh, or use that in your tax return to net against uh, current income. So if you had 100-acre property and you donated it to um, one of the various land trusts around uh, and there's a value ascribed to that property, that value... Uh, gets uh, is a donation, essentially, and goes against your tax return. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's, not that, that's not that controversial. What is controversial, <clears throat> in many ways, is the establishment of that value. So if you have 100 acres of swampland that you uh, conserve that didn't really have a commercial purpose, let's say you get $100,000 of value uh, on that front. On the other hand, if you ascribe a more commercial value to that property, and let's say it's uh, maybe out of that hundred acres, maybe one acre is swamp land and 99 acres is something where you could put a solar farm or develop mineral rights to it. You can put a higher valuation and therefore get a larger deduction uh, mm-hmm. for that mm-hmm. for that piece of property. So uh, what, Again, uh, getting uh, good realistic valuations for conservation easements—that's uh, fine. That—that's not that controversial in and of itself either. So if you go in and say, "Okay, here's 100 acres," I—I uh, I could, in theory, put a 99 acre solar farm on it that could generate X Mm -hmm. amount of dollars and that has a certain amount of money. So instead of hundred thousand dollars before for just raw land, you now have something that maybe is worth a million dollars. And so by conserving that you take that valuation and you put that against your tax return. So what invariably, uh, the next step along that, and this is where it does get controversial is when you take that same concept and, uh, other investors, through syndication essentially, pay into a fund uh, at the $100,000 level and then uh, later that solar valuation comes into play and then different people in a sense are able to take advantage of that different deduction. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the, the controversial part is the idea that someone is, could essentially for a very limited amount buy a larger deduction for their own tax return without any technical increase in value necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so what's tricky about that is that you're using concepts that, are, that make a lot of sense. Uh, the idea of conserving land is a noble idea. Uh, the idea of taking a deduction is a good one the idea of taking a deduction for a highest commercial purpose is also a good one. Uh, I think the IRS, it's, it's a transaction that the IRS is definitely scrutinizing. Um, What's happened is I think that the the controversial part is that the valuations have been uh, in some cases really, I wouldn't say abusive, but pretty pretty darn bad. Uh, So if you take a hundred thousand dollar property that's just raw and you say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to mine, you know, plutonium out of it. And I'm going to put a billion dollar valuation on it. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to sell that to a bunch of different people. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't look right. And I think yeah. that's what the yeah. IRS is trying to uh, screw. Yeah. Up. Um, so th- I, what I tell people, they come across my desk, what I tell people on it is say, look, you're going to get audited. Uh, the original deal is probably going to get audited as well. Uh, and I would just be ready for it. Uh, I think in some mm-hmm. cases uh, it, when, when valid. So first of all, I think on one hand, the, the, the I's have to be dotted and the T's crossed to a level of perfection. that You have to just make sure you have to make darn sure uh, that, that that's right. So assuming that the form follows the function on that front the next thing is to make sure that the valuations are reasonable. And uh, uh, and so if you have a piece of property that could realistically be dedicated toward uh, a solar farm, let's say, and many could, uh, you know, make sure that the valuation reflects that correctly. And uh, I, I think it's, I, I don't think you're doing yourself any favors by being, uh, uh, by playing huge reindeer games with valuations on that front. That's what... Right. Uh, right. that 's what ultimately what gets
0: you in hot water
1: yeah right, and you know, and if someone comes to you with one of these deals, I think the important thing to think about uh, if you 're going to go that route is to uh, make sure that the deal itself, the people who are sponsoring it and and putting that forward that there is a large pool of uh, or that there's a pool of defense assets uh, within the fund, because the IRS is going to come and take a look at those valuations and you want the transaction to hold up. Um, and I would yeah. try to, yeah. I try to be around as many um, good actors as possible on that front uh, and just okay. understand that you're, that there may be that, that donation, that conservation easement that, that, that could uh, net against your tax return um, you know, that's something the IRS is going to take a look at probably yeah. and probably yeah. take a real hard look at it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've got some, some stories around that, but we'll, uh, they're pretty self-explanatory based on what you've just said. Right. Um, take us through, um, solar power development. Now I'm going to have a shameless plug here. Uh, I have a, another guest coming on in a, a couple of days time, a gentleman by the name of Stu Kaplan, who's with, um, who's with Apex Financial Advisors and um, he puts together these these solar deals. Uh, he's really a real estate guy uh, and they've been putting, you know, solar panels on top of uh, parking lots and, and the like. And so he's going to walk us through one of these deals in kind of a great detail, talk about the tax credits, the, the ROI, and you know, offtake agreements and stuff. So really interesting and gaining a, a lot, a lot of um, popularity. So tell us a little bit more about some of these solar deals, please.
1: Yeah, so I I'm not going to take too much of his thunder away from it, but the uh, the concept behind the solar deals is that uh there are investment tax credits and the acceleration of depreciation uh mm-hmm. that uh are particularly interesting in an, in beyond the merits of the solar deal itself, which, you know, is a power generation capability and and being able to sell electricity to the grid. It has its own yeah. business components to it that are uh, that, that I think are novel and uh, you know, hopefully hold up on their own hold up on their own right uh, but essentially mm-hmm. what, what what gets people thinking about solar as as both a is an investment and as a potential use of tax credits um, the idea is that uh you, you get above average yield with tax incentives. Uh, the, the tax incentive is a, is a 26% investment tax credit and an accelerated uh, bonus depreciation. So investors are able to use the ITC and the accelerated depreciation during year one. Uh, and you know, so if the deal is right, you're able to take, uh, these types of things and move them off. Uh, the benefits can be rolled forward for 20 years, uh, and they can be used against the previous tax return year as well. Um, and then after six years of operation, the investor may choose to sell or hold that solar development. Um, so I mean, that's basically it. You, you get the benefit of accelerated depreciation, you get the benefit of a 26% tax credit, and hopefully you have an underlying investment piece, uh, that is something that's useful in your portfolio, um, above and beyond, uh, just sort of the tax tail wagging the dog.
0: Yeah. Yeah. they they become very popular. So we'll get into that in more detail, but thanks. Thanks for the primer there. Um, Okay. I'm going to, we're going to do a quick rapid-fire session uh, phrase, and then, then we'll, um, we'll call it a day. You've been very generous with your time, and I appreciate
1: that. What, one, I, one, I, thing. One, one thing that I forgot, uh, which is yeah. uh, for people who are in high-tax states, not New York, so California, New Jersey, and other ones, uh, there's these, the concept of uh, non-grantor trusts, Um, so for just a quick background, so for trust planning, a grantor trust is a trust where the grantor or the settler pays the taxes. A non-grantor trust is when the trust pays its own taxes. And, uh, as part of a state tax, excuse me, income tax planning, that's becoming more in sort of in vogue right now. And with the idea that California income tax is looking at becoming 16 plus percent, the idea of residents uh, putting assets into non-grantor, meaning the trust pays the taxes return in states that have no state income tax, uh, that that concept uh, fulfills some estate planning uh, functions, but also fulfills some income tax planning functions. Uh, So states, Delaware, uh, Wyoming, Nevada, uh, Tennessee, uh, they have the capability of having non-grantor trusts where if there is enough separation of nexus, meaning that, the let's say, a California resident has uh, as little in terms of ties to that trust, there may be some income tax planning uh, uh, that can be achieved there. So I throw that in there. That's something that uh, for people in high-tax states, uh, they should be asking their estate planners about. Uh, and they're, you know, they're general advice folks. Uh, and that comes with a caveat that in New York, it doesn't exist. New York legislated that capability out, but at the moment it's it. in some other States.
0: Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Rapid fire, rapid fire session quickly. Um, selling a business. How would you, how would you advise a client, small business, you know, medium sized business, any advice you could provide?
1: Purely on the tax angle. Um, So there's two components. Uh, Again, the idea of of using jurisdictional arbitrage to Mm -hmm. uh, sort of take uh, your affairs out of a high tax state and put them into a lower tax state uh, or a zero tax state from a trust perspective. uh, I would be thinking about that. Uh, Now, there is a huge caveat to all of that. Uh, So if you have a, a, in the caveat is something called source income, meaning if the business Mm -hmm. is generating the asset, the generating income or generating return within a certain state uh, that you're going to have trouble moving those, you're going to have trouble sort of avoiding state tax on that front great example of that yeah, is real yeah. estate. If you have a building where people are paying you yeah. rent, you can't move that to a Delaware corporation and put it in a Tennessee trust and expect New York to say that that's, that's not something that we tax. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. source income is, a, is, a, is an issue um, for business owners. However, if you are a Bitcoin trader or uh, if, you ha- if your assets are intangible, um, mm-hmm. and I would say IP, royalties, things like that, uh, I would really look hard at uh, thinking about locating your assets uh, and structuring your affairs in a way that uses that jurisdictional arbitrage between say in New York and yeah. California versus a yeah. Tennessee or Delaware and, uh, a, a, that have no state income tax. Um, you know, yeah. there's a lot of people who talked about moving to Puerto Rico if they were day traders and things like that, because there's, there's even advanced sort of avoiding federal tax or issues it's there. Yeah. Now you have to make a big lifestyle choice in moving to Puerto Rico and you have to go through a lot of different hoops, but uh, that's an idea. But for those people who are sort of more comfortable within the continental US, there are a lot of great places to be where uh, you can um, uh, enjoy uh, zero state income tax uh, and zero capital gains tax without necessarily giving up your, the state where you grew up in and that type of thing at least on yeah. a total basis.
0: Okay. You, you, you already uh, hit on my Puerto Rico question, so we'll, we'll, we'll cancel that one out. Um, here's one, probably not directly related, but I'd love your comment on it because I think it's, well, the Volcker rule, as you know, was recently rescinded or um, you know, taken back in certain forms or another. Now, you and I are well aware of the Volcker rule because we lived through the 2008-2009 crisis And Volcker Rule was essentially put in place to do a lot of things, but primarily to stop banks from making, you know, principal bets, um, investing in their own private equity, in their own, you know, balance sheet kind of thing. Um, Again, there may be no tax implications that we can think of straight away. I I certainly think there are unintended consequences. But it seems to me that by rescinding the Volcker Rule, we're just returning back to that, you know, those days of the early 2000s um, where, investment banking was all all popular because they were using their balance sheets to make bets and stuff. So I guess it's more of a comment around the banking environment from which we've come and gone. Uh, But again, any, any loose thoughts around that?
1: Well, I I am, my thoughts evolve on this topic all the time, uh, depending, I I feel like the banks are about to walk into a very difficult situation right now, especially ones with a huge degree of um, uh, exposure to commercial real estate, exposure to uh, uh, all sorts of things where sort of liquidity benchmarks and capital requirements may get tested a little bit Uh, i think Mm -hmm. the banking industry learned a great deal from 2008 and so i think that their their capital uh, backstops are well established right now and so i think this i think we're actually uniquely uh, well prepared from a banking perspective uh, to deal with what we're dealing with right now i hope I, I'm a big believer. I, I I go back to sort of Graham Leach-Bliley and the idea of the financial supermarket and everything's in one under one roof and uh, mm-hmm. all the all the smart people are under one roof and I, I don't believe that anymore. Uh, I, I I think I, I think separation and competition and lots of firms. Uh, I think that's a, um, uh, I think that's healthy for the system overall and that the consolidation mm-hmm. of of firms. You know, provide some scale, but uh, it provides real danger for, um, you know, sort of the cross-sell and conflicts of interest uh, that we see pop up. And whether there's yeah. conflicts of interest, especially in a big-time corporate setting, uh, I think that that's a. I I think that's how, that's how mistakes get made. And um, then then you have blowups and, you know, ultimately lots of blowups leads to systemic risk and systemic risk is what you really want to avoid. And you, I think you avoid some systemic risk by having a lot of medium sized firms uh, and, and having that separation in place. But
0: yeah, You know, I,
1: yeah. I, and it's a balance and it kind of depends on whom you're dealing with. I mean, I, I think we all kind of like the idea of having Jamie Dimon at the head of J.P. Morgan and having a an institution with that kind of heft, uh, able to provide leadership, uh, with some of the other big institutions around certain things when maybe the government isn't, isn't providing that leadership or is, is, is becoming more informed about the the scenarios that are in place, especially as it's complicated and you have huge exposures with derivatives, et cetera, that yeah, are, are yeah, so exactly. very difficult to understand even for experts. Um, so you know, banking system. I I I would say just in summary, I think I, I'm comfortable with where we are. I think the banks are well capitalized. I think that uh, I I tend to think that a larger number of medium sized uh, banks is, is a healthier thing for the country.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, just more of a, a commentary on the on on that side of things. Not really a tax question. I agree. it. You know, I can almost see it as sowing the seeds of the next uh, um, crisis, if you will. Because if you think about it, right. Um, you know, what's going to stop uh, somebody, and I'm actually quite bullish on banks as a, as a result. So, so two things. First thing is part of the res- rescission of the Volcker Rule was actually the relaxation of um, collateral behind derivative transactions, swap transactions. So that just make, puts more leverage in the system. The other thing is, you know, what stops some young buck or, uh, you know, if you guys now from buying a, a fed, an FDIC bank, uh, and essentially going and borrowing at the Fed window at whatever basis points and then you know, lending that into their uh, private equity business or their um, you know, whatever real estate private credit business for that net interest margin, yay, yay big. So play, you know just playing the balance sheet uh, game. So I, I suspect that will happen.
1: I, I mean, I, I, my, my, my other comfort on that is that uh, buying an FDIC-insured bank is a real pain in the butt. Uh yeah, and I mean it worked is. for Wilmington Trust, now owned by M and T Bank, and uh it took them uh three years to get uh a Hudson City merger through. Uh, I mm-hmm. I have if there is one government agency that I have real confidence in, it's the FDIC. Uh because they 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 <laughs> know they know that they have the biggest responsibility out there because if something goes wrong, you know, they owe, you know, up to two hundred and
0: fifty yeah, thousand dollars
1: mm-hmm. And yeah. they don't fool around with that. And so if you get some yeah. real maverick who thinks that they can go buy up some banks and then use the balance sheet for something else, you know, maybe you could. But I, those folks in particular, I think that that's, that's, you're, you're dealing with the fundamental foundation of this country when you start messing around with that. So I, I, yeah. I feel like they take yeah. that. No. Good the real- Good point.
0: Okay, we're going to end off on, on one last, uh, a lightning round became, let's say, more of a rolling, rolling storm round, it took a <laughs> bit longer. Uh, last one, uh, again, just one that I came across that's you know, kind of interesting. I think it was in a, some recent you know, tax amendment bill where it allowed you to carry back, uh, you, you have to correct me on this, but carry back losses, I think, further than you could before or, or amend and actually get, um, actually get a tax refund as it were um is, is any of this ringing a bell or am i just i you know what,
1: i i i think i read something about that but i i can't talk intelligently about it i i know that the yeah, idea of yeah. taking losses and expanding their use is always interesting for certainly for taxpayers and it's and it's sort of an interesting um uh Cherry to dangle in front of people that that doesn't cost uh, the i r s or the state tax authorities yeah, that yeah. much because it's only a very few number of people who are going to take advantage of something like that um, yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean I think the idea that there are going to be losses uh, people are going to have, have losses they're going to have lower incomes theoretically uh, this year, certainly the ten ninety nine folks if the you know slowdown of work you know, is in place, mm-hmm. certain sectors yeah. of course. Um, so they're going to be take, people uh, looking at taking losses and writing things off, and uh, I think the intelligent ones too are going to be sort of saying, "Okay, here are losses this year that I can carry forward into next year." Um, so anything that that uh, maximizes the leverage of those losses is uh, you know, something to be yeah. considered. great man. Listen, uh,
0: you know, I'm always reminded by the um, by the fact that the tax code I think is uh, uh, ten times longer than the Bible both the Old and New Testament. So uh, it's, it's interesting that we can go so long talking about taxes. So Fraser, listen, always a pleasure to speak to you, to see you again. I'm glad you're doing well. And, um, you know, uh, l- lovely chat, good information as always. I wish you all the best. And uh, thank you for coming and joining us again. And let me just uh, leave the mic to you for any final words. Sure. Uh, before uh, you do that, I-, I would just say, if anyone wants to get hold of Fraser, his contact details will be, uh, append it to the podcast. Otherwise, just feel free to come through me. Happy to make an introduction to, to Fraser uh, and then as a result to uh, Pendleton Square. Uh,
1: Greg, thanks for having me on again. Uh, hopefully I passed this audition too. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, the third
0: time's a permanent one. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. So,
1: uh, But I appreciate being on. And, and I just just for people out there, I would impress upon them that uh, th- this one component with with the way things are sort of surfacing right now I think the last quarter is going to be one of the busiest as it relates to tax planning and estate planning. so if you have thoughts mm-hmm. about reviewing things, I would get going on it now. I think August is a perfect month. September is a good month uh, because once September fifteenth and October fifteenth start rolling around, the accountants are going to be really busy uh, The estate right. planners the the estate planning attorneys and so on they're they 're already busy. Uh, so I'd get it done. Uh, and you know, there's always an issue with places running out of tax ID numbers or trying to get accounts open or KYC. So <laughs> if you leave it until mm-hmm. December, uh, you, you, you run the risk of not getting it done real well. So, uh, yeah. now's the time to check. Bye. Out. All right.
0: Thanks, Rose. you have a good Greg. day and you take care of yourself.
1: Likewise. Bye-bye. Take care, Greg.